0: Welcome to The Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy.
1: Today on The Family Brain, I'll be talking with Sasha Tweel about her daughter who has a rare genetic disorder called Prader-Willi Syndrome. We talk about her own management of her daughter's special needs and also just coping with learning more about her disorder when her daughter was first born and just managing the unexpected turn her family life has taken. So, hope you enjoy. Okay. Hi, Sasha. This is Megan. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today and sort of tell us about your family's journey.
2: Well, I'm grateful to be here. I'm glad that we were connected, and I can be here today to talk to you.
1: Awesome. Um, I was wondering if maybe you could just sort of paint a picture of what your family, who's in your family.
2: Okay. So um, back in 2007, I married my husband, Doug. and. We had been dating for about a year, but we knew that we wanted to start a family, and so um, we got started right away, and we got married in June, and by August, uh, I was pregnant, and um, at that point, um, we were almost at full gestational age, um, and we had an appointment, and things were just a little off, not off just a little off, mm-hmm. and so they decided they wanted to go ahead um, and induce. And so um, they did that. And when um, all was said and done, after about 36 hours of labor and a couple of times where when they upped the Pictosin, Sophie would make her heart slow down a little bit. Finally, they went ahead and did a C-section. They got her up, and she got a nine-on-a-nine on, nine on her up core, and we had a Sophie in our family. Hmm. Um, so everything at that point looked really good for us, um, but that didn't last very long.
1: Okay. So you started so, to get signs that there was an issue. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yes. So uh, since I had had a C-section, um, they went ahead and, you know, we had to stay a little bit longer than typical would, you know, a typical family would stay in the hospital and about day three, was when they started noticing she had lost a lot of weight. Um, there were some other things going on. Um, she was a very quiet, very floppy baby. Mm-hmm. And they were like, mm, we think something's wrong here. Hmm. And so they went to away to NICU. And that was when our big journey really started.
1: Yeah. And did yeah. you have a sense that there was already... Did you have a worry at that point, or were you still just kind of in recovery mode yourself and just kind of, I had C-sections also, so I know the feeling of, like, just not really feeling all the way there even, you know, of right. just what is going on here? Right,
2: exactly. Well, and so this was, obviously, it was our first baby. Mm-hmm. Um, it scared me. When they took her to the NICU, I mean, it was, it was like a really terrifying moment. And so I think I just sort of snapped in that moment. (laughs) I was like, I know I didn't, I know I didn't feel, I know I hurt, you know, I didn't feel good. Um, But I was just like, give me drugs. I got to go see my baby. (laughs) And that was pretty much how I dealt with it then for you know, the next couple of weeks was just, I wasn't quite healed, but that was not my priority. My priority was my child. And we, we, I was just really scared. And so sort of that adrenaline of being afraid and that, that mom instinct of just being like, okay, you know, I've got to figure this out. We've got to figure this out. I've got to be there for my baby. And so it just sort of overrode everything.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and I managed.
1: So how did you end up? When did you so that was when they took her to the NICU. How did you sort of end up finding out what was going on? Did it take a long time or was it a relatively quick?
2: It was at four ended up that Sophie had it was quite a quick turnaround. It took about seven days before oh, wow. from the time that they took her from my room in the hospital to the NICU, um, they had a definitive answer for us, which is remarkable for her diagnosis. Um, but they we, we were lucky. Right. Um we had we had planned to have Sophie in a hospital with NICU because we had some other extenuating circumstances with my husband that just made us want to be safe, mm-hmm. and um, so that was that was very helpful. And then um, when they went ahead and got her the NICU and brought the geneticists in, the geneticists knew pretty much right away because they had had another baby, ironically named Sophie. Mm. Who had been in the same EQ almost exactly a year before with the same syndrome. Wow. And that is magnificent because what had ended up happening was that she had prader willey syndrome, and that's about one in 15,000 births. Mm. So it was very serendipitous.
1: That, I mean, that uh, gives so me chills, really. That's I know. so amazing because. It was. I mean, you think of even more common issues that take forever to get a diagnosis, you know, and just, that's, that's amazing. And especially with a baby so young. Um, Right. Right. I mean, it was, it was immediate
2: and they, and you know, there, there are some facial uh, characteristics. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some um, obviously the hypotonia that she had that sort of flower sack presentation and the sleepiness and lack of alertness and lack of um, reflex was all very typical Prader-Willi syndrome. Um, and then she it, what the reason she was losing so much weight was although it looked like she was latching and breastfeeding she wasn't she was not able to she was so weak
1: mm-hmm. that she was unable
2: to coordinate suck swallow breathe process so she was silently aspirating oh everything that she was getting into her mouth and so that that was really. You know, the beginning, those things were the tipping point. They immediately got her, um, you know, an NG2 when she got to the NICU. And um, they were... She fortunately did not have a lot of the respiratory problems although she did have oxygen for a little while in the Um, a lot of kids with Prader-Willi syndrome have a lot of respiratory problems and she did not have that quite so much with the oxygen although her respirations were very shallow and um, you know they did send us home on a heart and lung monitor because they wanted to make sure that she was breathing yeah. and, and all of those things but it was just because she was so weak her oh, muscles God. were so so weak and she was so you know she she was, she had to fight to do everything. She had to prioritize, you know, she had to prioritize breathing over being
1: awake.
2: Right. You know, those, those sorts of things. And, um,
1: So you know, when you found was... all of this out, I'm just imagining first-time parenthood is anxiety-provoking, to say the least. And right. now you have this, this basically, um, not obligation, but what's the word? Responsibility to Responsibility. make sure. Yeah, that she stays alive. I mean, and, yeah. and we all feel that anyway, but this is is a complicated, I mean, were you feeling grief, anxiety? What was the, what was your response or your husband, all you and your, all of them? Yeah.
2: All of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it was all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that for me personally, you know, before, so they, they knew right away that Sophie had Carter rolli syndrome, although they didn't tell us that and they did run the battery of tests. It takes a little bit for them to get the, um, genetic testing back that shows. So what Prader-Willi syndrome is, is it's a deletion or somehow missing material on the 15th chromosome. And in our case, it was deletion. So if you had a deletion and it's on the dad's side, and that makes a difference in our case, because if it's on the mom's side, then it's a sister syndrome called Angelman's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, you know, they did this specific genetic test to find out if that material was present and it wasn't, and that was how they definitively knew that at seven days that she did have prodigal wow. syndrome. That's so um, they told us when I, I was there, you know, every day from sunup to sundown mm-hmm. um, with Sophie uh, in the hospital, and they told me to look it up, which I don't ever recommend anyone oh, doing, yes.
1: um, because Googling... Yeah, how many I years ago was this?
2: So this was in 2008.
1: 2008, okay, so maybe people know now, doctors know, like, hey, go Google it, maybe it was an earlier, I don't know, hopefully that's not a practice anymore, because, okay, sorry, go ahead. It
2: was, yeah, it's not a good practice, and also, um, for our syndrome in particular, um, Sophie's generation is a little bit different than the generation before, and I'll get to that, but the outlook was bleak. Mm-hmm. To say the least and um, but I also knew that she could survive. so right. that was helpful. Um, and so basically they told us, you know we're gonna check her, we're gonna check her brain, we're gonna check everything, but look this thing up, it might be what happened. and um, it in fact was. so when We knew that for sure, then we had to learn all the stuff we needed to know to take our baby home, because it was clear that she was not going to be able to um, take a bottle because of the silent aspiration, so we knew we'd have to take her home on an NG tube, so we had to learn how to do that, and then we also had to learn how to do the heart and lung monitor, because they wanted to make sure she had that whenever she was sleeping, so that in case she did stop breathing, we could do something about it, and then we also had to learn infant CPR, so that we could start her breathing if, Mm -hmm. in fact, it did stop, so we oh. within you know, just That's a awesome. week's time, we had a crash course mm-hmm. in all these things, and I became an instant nurse. Now, mm-hmm. a little background on that, what's helpful and useful, and, you know, sometimes, again, serendipity, um, my background is in social work. So I had worked in social work, I'd worked in violence prevention for a long time, and then I went to grad school and I switched and I started working in skilled nursing. So I was actually really familiar with hospitals and skilled nursing facilities and medical interventions and nurses and therapists and all these things. I had this wealth of knowledge and information about that
1: process. That is very fortunate because that's another thing that's just very intimidating to a lot of people, you know, to have to advocate in a system that you feel intimidated in is not easy.
2: Right. No, it's, it's really, it's, it's hard. And it's hard even for the most seasoned people when it's your family and Mm. your baby. So that was very, very useful. And then my husband, as I sort of alluded to earlier, had had some medical problems in his life. So he was very familiar with the patient part of it. Mm. And so the two of us as a team were pretty well prepared for at least the intellectual rigor of managing our daughter's syndrome, the emotional rigor was very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I will say that that first year of her life was one of the hardest years of my life. Yeah, um, because she was failure to thrive, and it was very hard to, you know, see her. if you know, she was basically asleep for the first six months of her life, and all of these people around me had that had their babies. Their babies were reach, reaching these milestones and doing all these things, and I was. Pumping constantly mm. and feeding my baby through a tube, and you know, just I had to wake her up to do stuff, mm. and it was it was a struggle. I mean, it's really hard, it's hope you know, even again, intellectually, you know. But your heart, it's hard on your heart. It's yeah. hard to go through that. Yeah. And, you know, and the, the fear, the fear was immense, you know, because there, the mortality rate was high and it was scary and we just didn't know. And we we loved our baby from the minute she came into this world and right. we wanted the world for her and we had to really shift our expectations and perceptions to meet our reality. And we're still doing that all the time, but it's, it's, it's a huge challenge.
1: Yeah. What about in those early years, were you able to find a support group or was it just so busy that that was sort of a luxury at that point?
2: So we did get connected with a support group, but that first year, again, it was, it was so, it was, it was really rigorous. And it was also because, because it was still 2008, the support that you have today online, yeah. groups like Facebook and other things, didn't exist.
0: Right. So um, I did get connected with a parent mentor who
2: I still call a friend, and her—I uh, think she's 15 now—year-old daughter um, is still an inspiration to us and a friend of Sophie's, and we're so grateful for that. Mm-hmm. And um, we did meet the other Sophie family and became friends oh, with wow, them. Cool. And, and they were actually the first family that we ever met with face-to-face who had a child with Willi syndrome and that was when my Sophie I think was about a year and a half and their Sophie was about two and a half so it took a while to get really connected with people mm-hmm. um and it took even longer to get really connected with the people that I'm connected with now that are incredible motivators and really there's so much exciting stuff going on and it's unbelievable That's
1: awesome. um but it does take thing. time. I mean, it's hard to Just even apologize. connect with other parents in general. But when you have all of these other things that you're trying to do to make sure your child has health and appointments, and mm-hmm. it's hard to, it's hard to make a friend with all of that going on. Exactly. Yeah. It was hard to leave the house because I was pumping all the time oh, and I sure. had
2: all this equipment. And if I had to feed my baby, I had to
1: bring the, the feeding machine. You know?
2: yes. It was, it was a real challenge. And fortunately I had a couple friends who really got me through, um, that came to visit me on a regular basis. And I'm just, I, I'm, so grateful for them and um, we did have therapists that started coming when Sophie was about 6 months old and we had a feeding therapist and we had occupational therapist and then a little bit later than that we had a physical therapist and eventually we ended up with a developmental therapist and we had a vision therapist. I mean we had this huge team of people that would come to our house and help Sophie and that was and we had a visiting nurse and all of those people came and helped me first of all not feel so isolated but second of all really learn you know where Sophie was at what she was capable of and push her and it was it was a really once she sort of woke up and part of the reason I think that she woke up is sort of congruent um, I, she would have woken up anyway but really this, it was sort of the right time is there was a treatment for Prader-Willi syndrome of human growth hormone and For us, this was in 2008, it had really only been designated by the FDA as treatment, standard protocol treatment in the early 2000s. So again, that's why I say that Sophie was sort of a different group, because this became the standard of care in these kids, by and large, not all, but many and most are getting growth hormone intervention. And in Sophie's case, we had, you know, it was hard to get. Now they're trying to get it in these kids as soon as they get a diagnosis, which is making a huge difference for their development, their wakefulness, their ability to eat with a bottle, all of these things. Um, They did not do that back then, um, or at least in our treatment providing system, they did not do that. And so um, she started getting growth hormone about six months after she was born. I remember it was actually Halloween of 2008. And um, I was just – my wish was that I would have a baby that could hold her head up at Christmas and – before we started giving her growth hormone treatment, um, they did a baseline test, and she didn't even show up on the test. So, the baseline, she wasn't even making that much growth hormone in her body. Um, and once we started introducing it, um, by that Christmas, I did have a baby that could hold her head up, and um, it was it was a miracle to me. It was a miracle drug to me. It was it made just huge huge differences in her alertness and her ability to move, you know, her you know, her breathing, all of these things just made her so much stronger. And I I'm so grateful that that's a treatment. I'm so grateful they discovered that. And I'm I, I can't even imagine what our lives would be like without it. And it's it's a battle. It's a battle to get it. It's extremely expensive. Mm. Our last shipment was eight hundred dollars for a twenty one day supply out of our pocket with that's after insurance. Wow. It's
1: unbelievable. Why do you think it's, it's so critical? What? Why is she it so expensive? It. Well, is, it, is that a whole nother? It's it, a whole it's on the whole next good. episode. <laughs> okay. It's
2: a specialty medication. Okay. Um, it's it's controlled. Mm-hmm. It's you know you can't just go to the pharmacy and pick it up. We have right. to have it shipped. You know okay. um, it's it's a. a shell game with the insurance companies where we've been on, this is our third different kind that, you know, they will cover over Sophie's lifetime and um, whenever they think they can get away with not giving it, they try not to and we've had to appeal decisions on more than one occasion to get them to cover the medication um, and it's because it is so expensive, you mm. know, nobody wants to pay for that. No. And so and there's no such thing as a generic in this case. There are several brands, but um, and as far as I understand it, there's not sort of an off-brand that makes it work. Okay. So it's, and this is not just us. This is a universal challenge that parents of children with Prader-Willi syndrome experience. We, we are actually lucky that we only have to really go to battle and fight for it once a year. Um, some families have to fight for it once every six months,
0: mm-hmm. and they have
2: to go through the appeals process once every six months, and it's, it's really hard because our kids need this. Even Mm -hmm. if they do produce growth hormone There's something with either the synthesis or the metabolization or, you know, the way their bodies utilize it, they need the extra intervention. It makes a difference for them.
1: That's huge. I mean, and I know one of the things um, that you had mentioned before we talked today is just this idea with more rare diseases that there's not always the funding or the support for these kinds of the research and interventions.
2: Right, exactly. And, and, you know, I have friends with, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and other rare diseases where they, you know, it's hard to, again, like you mentioned, it's hard to get even the initial diagnosis, much less than, you know, you can find a support group and you can find other people that are dealing with it, but finding experienced, skilled practitioners who know that all of the treatment options and that are willing to, to provide the support, and then beyond that, finding, you know, people who are putting funding into doing research, I mean, for us,
1: we are extremely lucky in that we actually in the united states we have carter
2: willie syndrome usa is one group and then the foundation for carter willie research which is another group that are doing fundraising and uh, actually doing the
0: process of um, funding various research studies
2: and clinical trials of medication and um, they're getting somewhere and what what's amazing is Prader-Willi syndrome, while you have this failure to thrive at the beginning of a life of a person with Prader-Willi syndrome, the other thing that happens, and the thing that's going to impede Sophie's ability to be independent in the future, is that it swings the other way, and after not being able to eat, usually sometime between the ages, I think, of three and eight, um, the part of the hypothalamus that is impacted by the deletion of genetic material malfunctions or it's been malfunctioning but it something with the malfunction makes it so that they never know when they're full they don't ever reach satiety, and actually more than that they're starving mm. all the time and food becomes an extreme uh preoccupation um and I remember when Sophie was little she would be eating and she'd say I'm hungry and I'm like you're eating mm-hmm. <laughs> um and it becomes an unsafe thing. Their drive to eat is so great that um, some kids will pick in the garbage. They will eat things that aren't food. They will eat hair. They will eat string. They will eat all kinds of things. Um, they they just get access to food and they eat it. Mm-hmm. Sophie is the type right now that um, when she
1: has access to unchecked food, uh, I call it a sort of... Um, opportunist Mm -hmm.
2: uh, either if somebody leaves something out she's going to eat it
1: right yeah
2: (laughs) we have to be really careful of that but then the other part of it is that because of her low muscle tone and metabolism um maybe or maybe not just directly related to the growth hormone maybe there's more to it all of those things they're doing so much research now and trying to figure it all out um she can only have like two-thirds of what typical kids eat and she now that they've done more research are finding that a typical diet is not even appropriate and that they have to do something like a modified Atkins diet or a ketogenic diet um, where high uh, high fat, uh, medium protein, and low carbs mm-hmm. is the way to go. And it's, it's very specialized. Yeah. You don't think you're going to feed your kid that way, but guess what? Um, You know, we didn't do that until Sophie was five, and we learned about it, and we were like, well, we're going to give it a shot, and her growth went totally, you know, she grew, and she slimmed down, and she's been in a relatively healthy weight ever since. So it's, you know, these these pieces of research and looking into things and even just, you know, that's, that's not something that, you know, I mean, it takes money to have people do the comparison, mm-hmm. but it's not even an investigational drug situation that has made a huge difference for Sophie. Um, and there are a lot of medications that have also been on the docket, and Sophie has participated in clinical trials um, for oxytocin, for example, um, that made a huge difference for her. So funding for... Rare diseases in general and probably in specific are very important because it's making a difference. And because obesity becomes one of the big issues with these patients when they are even as little as toddlerdom, um, looking into finding out how to fix that, and it has huge implications for health across all people, right. not just our kids.
1: Yeah. what? How does she respond I'm just thinking that's just, so, I mean, I'm sure you've thought this before. It's just not fair. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just not fair. Like, how does she respond to this having to have more restrictive, because what, she's 10 now? She's 10 now. 10. Yeah. Um, so, you know, seeing what other people are doing and, and how does she process this that, that, but I can't do that. How did, how, yeah. or has it been a, a learning curve over time that I'm it's sure it continues? It's been a learning curve
2: over time for sure. Yeah. And, yeah. I am I am every day I'm so grateful for my kid. And one of the one of the wonderful things about kids with Prader syndrome is they do they have a hard time mm-hmm. managing their emotions. They can go from zero to De Niro in five seconds flat. Mm-hmm. Again, because you know, if you think about your life, you think about times when you're tired and hungry because also um, sleep cycles are impacted by Prader-Willi syndrome pretty much everything that your hypothalamus runs is impacted by Prader-Willi syndrome and um, she doesn't she doesn't get the same REM sleep that typical people get so Mm. she she sleeps she loves to sleep she sleeps all the time Mm -hmm. Um, but she also like doesn't get sleep like you I asleep so she's not well rested or at least as well rested as the rest of us mm-hmm. and she's hungry all the time and you think about being under those conditions constantly and what that does to your mood so right. the fact that this child is as bright and sunshiny and social and loving and snuggly and amazing as she is i'm, I'm grateful every day because she really is and um Prader-Willi is definitely a uh, spectrum syndrome. So there are kids all across that have, there are all kinds of different things that can go wrong. One of the things that went wrong with Sophie is that she has severe scoliosis and she had surgery when she was four to correct it. Okay. And there's actually a physician in Philadelphia that specializes in Prader-Willi and scoliosis. But we didn't know about him then. Mm-hmm. So we did it the traditional way. And I wish I'd known then what I know now, but yeah. I don't. So, um, that's one of the things, but like I said, the respiratory issues, um, kids can have, um, autism spectrum disorder. In addition to having Prader-Willi syndrome, um, many kids that have Prader-Willi syndrome have other syndromes. Sophie has a hearing loss that has nothing to do with Prader-Willi syndrome, but that's another genetic issue mm-hmm. that caused a malformation in her inner ear. So it's a whole nother issue. It's all of these things sort of play together. Um, in addition to all the other parts, some, uh, mental health issues can become a big thing, um. It's such a gamut and a spectrum, and Sophie is doing really well, and we are so grateful for that. And that's not the experience of all these parents that have children with Prader-Willi syndrome, and um, not all kids can understand it. Some kids, all kids, seem to have some learning difficulty in some way, but some of them are are quite normal in the intelligence spectrum, um, and some of them have a lot of developmental disability. But again, it's it's just you don't know what's going to happen. It's such a crapshoot. And Sophie has a lot of challenges, but she also gets a lot of stuff. And so the basic answer to your question is she definitely has moments where she says it's not fair. And I don't disagree with her, and we process those feelings. I yeah. say, no, you're right. It's not fair. Yeah. It's not fair that, and I, we call it her hungry tummy or her tricky tummy. It's not fair that your tummy's trying to play a trick on you. It's not fair that you're hungry all the time. That's not fair. It's not fair that I can't give you all the things that you want all the time. But, and this is how I've always dealt with it with her, and it's been forever. Mm-hmm. I've always said this. I say to her, Sophie, my number one job is to keep you safe and healthy. And so if I do this, I'm not doing a good job. I'm only stopping you from doing this. I'm not giving you this food or I'm not letting you do this thing because I'm scared
0: of how it's going to affect your safety or your health. Mm -hmm.
2: And we have to make good choices because we want you to stay safe and healthy. Mm -hmm. And she has... I've just said it forever, and she's gotten it more and more and more. And so, when we start having a really hard time, and she wants something that she can't have, I refer back to that language, and yeah. she gets it. She That's understands so. that.
1: That's great because it's tough. I mean, it's just as I have a ten-year-old also, and it's tricky too when hormones start to play a part. Oh, it's yes. <laughs> new for us. New. Oh, it's, it's new for thing. me it's too. It's it is real, and it just um, you know, it's that. That wanting to spread your wings and be your own person, but also being a child still, and it's that in between space where you know I can see how it would be hard to um, you know they're they're getting more and more of a mind of their own, which is what we want, but right. But we also want to be in charge, <laughs> right? Yes. Exactly. Well, yes. and, and
2: in Sophie's case, you know, we kind of need in charge for sure need to know yes. that um you know she's that she's safe and she's she's starting to, one of our biggest challenges right now is that she wants to be independent and she can only be modified independent. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a couple of times where we've kind of let her have a little extra space, and those times have backfired. Yeah. Um, we have definitely seen times where she, you know, is manipulating people to get food or, you know, she's um, finding opportunities to get food that are, you know, foods that aren't good for her and that aren't safe. And, you know, these things are happening every time we give her that little bit of space. And we just, we just know that, you know... Under these circumstances, and until something changes, that's not an option for her. So we try to find ways to help her have some more space. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those things that we're looking into now is trying to get her a um, service dog. Oh, cool.
1: Okay. And
2: part of that for her would be helping to monitor. One of the other things that she has a really hard time with is temperature stability. Um, she can overheat or freeze seemingly out of nowhere for no reason at all, mm-hmm. um, and if she overheats, then she could have a seizure
1: mm-hmm.
2: and start a seizure disorder, which we suspect maybe she did when she was little, um, but we've been working really hard to manage it ever since, so a service dog to help with monitoring her temperature, a service dog to help with balance, a service dog to help her um, in case there's a risk that she should elope or get you know somewhere that she's not safe, um, or... The hearing issue has become a huge thing for us where, you know, we don't know what the future looks like. She has hearing aids now. She can hear well enough, you know, Mm -hmm. to be able to function. But that's not a guarantee. And so all of these pieces together are, are big pieces that we could get some help with with that, and also anxiety, <laughs> yeah. because that's a big issue when you're worried about the next meal all the time, that's, mm-hmm. that's a huge challenge, um, and she's afraid to be alone, she doesn't trust herself, and yeah. she, she knows that, but at the same time, she's like, I don't want you to treat me like a baby, I'm not a baby, right. and so it's a dance, and yeah. it's, we're, we're all constantly learning, we're right. all working together to try and figure this out, and we, we don't have all the answers, and we have a lot of hope that things are going to change, but we don't know, and yeah. so we're, we're, just doing the dance all right. the time. Once she goes to school, um she does have she's in a typical classroom uh with two teachers. She has a regular ed teacher and a special ed teacher. She's we're super lucky we live in a place where that service is available. Um and then she has a one to one eight for safety. And that person um is a remarkable help, not only to our daughter, but to the classroom and she's actually retiring at the end of the year and she's been with Sophie for four years so oh, okay. we're hard yeah <laughs> but it also gives us an opportunity to try and learn about what it's going to be like with new people and what her challenges are going to be in a new setting and we're getting ready to go to middle school in a year and everything's about to change yeah. and growing up is hard for
1: anybody but it's really hard for our kids I can imagine I can imagine what um was it tricky to advocate for her in the school setting? Like what did that, was that a uphill battle or were you fortunate yes. in where you were? Okay. Cause that's the hard part with all, all of these different things is getting accommodations for your kids and they cost money. So usually you have to fight for it.
2: Yes. And so again, my background lent itself well, well to navigating this process. I, I'm not afraid to ask for what I need and I did a ton of research about you know what was reasonable accommodation and what she needed and we started when we started um, with school. She started school when she was three because um, when you do early intervention in Illinois, um, home therapy lasts until they're three and then they're put into the public school system for therapy and other interventions. So we went to a school, Well, before that, even when we first had our initial um, individualized education plan meeting, we and drafted that original IEP. Um, We took all of the therapists that had been working with Sophie for those first three years to that first meeting and had them talk directly to the therapists that were doing the evaluations so that they knew what had been going on and were providing
1: appropriate care, which was. I can't buy that enough smart for anybody because even so, so good well and even if you're a person who is ready to speak your mind and stand up for what you need, I've noticed that there's often this um, undercurrent where you know sometimes oh well you're the parent so maybe you're not so sure sometimes bringing experts in helps you know,
2: any time you can bring them, your place. And bring them, yeah. it makes a huge difference. And one of the things that was funny in that first meeting, and I, I think it's huge, is that um, Sophie was there, and she was walking around. She was handing everybody food stuff. She's playing with a little toy kitchen. Um, so she was carrying something. She was handing stuff out. She was walking around. She, she looked great. Um, and they were like, oh, we don't really think she's going to need PT. And the PT was like, um, this child didn't start walking until six months ago. and everybody in the room was shocked right because she was functioning so well but that was legitimate like she had not started, started walking till she was two and a half so they they revised their realization of what she had struggled with in that moment that just that one millisecond of she didn't walk till she was two and a half they were like oh that's not we're seeing a different kid right now than we would have seen even just six months ago and that's that's the difference that therapy makes. So, um, that was huge. And then she also has some vision issues with uh, being able to see, uh, you know, on like on the ground, like changes in um, depth, and um, also some proprioception issues. So where her body is in space. So for safety, they really needed to do a lot more work, and that. Now that she's big, she has adaptive uh, physical education, but really not much other PE or, uh, physical um, therapy because she's, she's done so well, but she had intensive therapy for years and years to get her there. Um, and now we do more um, activities like we do swimming to help with core strength, and she's starting karate so that she can get more balance and strength. And all of these, you know, we do a lot of activities to try and supplement that. The things that she needs to be able to get bigger, stronger, faster, yeah. um, and so that was the beginning. Then the school, when we got there, this first school was terrible. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't even express how terrible it was. But I will say that there was one time when the teacher said to me, "Oh, well, she participated in this activity," and I was like, "What do you mean she participated in this activity? Isn't she at school to participate?" Yes. they were pulling her off to the side. Oh. And she wasn't, she was just watching all these kids do stuff. She wasn't even interacting and they had a one to one aid, which was great, but they should have had the one-on-one aid doing stuff and they weren't. And, Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to, they thought she was too high needs for their school and they wanted to kick her out and they called an IEP meeting and they wanted to change the whole IEP. They'd never met Sophie. These, these administrators that did this had never met Sophie. They, um, did it based on what they read on the internet Mm -hmm. and, um, So what I did then and subsequently did after that was I called um, the Board of Education and I talked to the folks in um, specialized education services and I said this is unacceptable. And I sent them the communications that I received via email and all of the information and I
0: said we we need a different placement. This is not going to work for us. And they sent us to another school which
2: had the model of what Sophie has now, where they had 15 typically developing kids and six kids with special needs in a classroom with a regular ed teacher, a special ed teacher, and three aides to help with all the kids in the classroom, kids that had special needs and then typical kids. Um, and it was amazing. That's cool. It was incredible. It
1: really it set sounds us up our Journey, yeah. And what yeah. I think that people don't realize is that that's a benefit to the kids who are developing typically as well. You know, the things, all the things we talk about, about increasing compassion and kindness and being aware. And then they're learning these other skills from the kids that are struggling in certain areas. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I think it's, it's something that we miss a lot, you know, by putting everybody that's the same all together. We, the things we say we care the most about, we're missing out on, you know?
2: Absolutely. Well, and it's so funny because, so this is when these kids were three and four, right? Sophie still has a friend. Ironically, named Sasha, mm-hmm. who she made when she was in preschool. And Sasha is totally typically developing. She is extremely emotionally aware, very sensitive, awesome kid, super talented. And she and Sophie love each other like we just over spring break planned a special they live way up on the north side of the city and we live in the south suburbs now and we we drove up there and planned a special play date for these two and we're planning to do it again soon because they they are special special friends and they've loved each other since way back then and they still have so much in common and they enjoy each other's company and Mm. they laugh. And and I'm so grateful for that friendship. I'm so grateful for that, for Sophie. And I'm so grateful for that for Sasha.
1: And um, it gives you hope and it gives you hope that that's, or or the realization that that is something that is possible if we allow it to happen, mm -hmm, you know, but if you don't get to know somebody who's different from you or, you know, and everybody is just like you. You're not going to get that opportunity. Exactly,
2: exactly. And back then, they, you know, the the typically developing kids that were close friends with Sophie, they helped her. You know, and they they urged her. And now, like you said, Sophie brings something to the table in her classes um, where she's in class with you know totally neurotypical classmates um, when they get stuck on something and they're having a hard time they they would have the tendency to give up mm-hmm. whereas Sophie everything is hard for her
1: mm-hmm.
2: and she's actually wearing a t-shirt today that says don't quit
1: oh i because
2: love that she is 100% like this is nothing is easy for me. Let's keep going. We're going to figure this out. You're yeah. smart and you can do this. Like, she is everybody's biggest cheerleader. That is and
1: so cool. She,
2: she gets paired with kids. Like, the teachers know that's her strength. Yeah. And they will put her with somebody who's liable to throw up their hands. They'll yeah. say, Sophie, you do this math with this person because you're going to make them a better
1: mathematician. That is so awesome. I love that. We need more of that in the world in general. <laughs> you know, we I really mean, do. And it's people are really they cool. Are
2: unbelievable. Like, yeah. they don't, they don't, you like, they're like, how, how did you, you teach her to do this? And I'm like, this is, for her, it's experiential. She, And part of it, too, is, you know, she, when you're a baby, you're a little tiny baby, and everything is so hard, like every move, everything, and you have all these therapists coming in, they're working with you, everybody's cheering all the time. And that's the thing that gets you through those days when you're that little person. You want to make the big people happy, and especially Sophie. She's an extremely social child, and so she would just go out of her way to get the cheer and to you know get the laugh and to to do the thing. And that that got into her heart. That now she she spreads that around. She's like okay. it's like glitter, you know. You got yeah. enough of it, just spread it around. And she she does. She's she was in a. Um, a swimming race for special olympics um her second one ever a second uh swim meet ever and her first special olympic participation and um, she was in this uh race with uh girls who were much older than she was and um but that was based it's all based on your own ability and your own time And so it was totally appropriate and um she came in third she got a bronze medal and the first thing she did when she got out of the water, she went over and she high fived the girl that won.
1: Oh, that's so good.
2: She was like, "Yes, uh-huh. did it." She wasn't. She was excited that she, you know, got a medal, and she was really proud of herself, and she was feeling really good. But she was so excited and happy for that girl that won. And that's what is so amazing about who she is and what she brings to the table and what she has to offer the world
1: because she's so cool. that's that kid. I love that. Well, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is just I feel like there's so many things that people go through that are so isolating. And so people might not understand the struggles or the hard things that you go through. And to bring that connection where I might have a little more compassion for what you're going through or a little bit more understanding of something that's not in my own experience. Having said that, you also get to learn that just because something's hard or just because somebody has a different challenge than you have, there's a different gift as well. And in, if right. unless you get to know that person or get to know the circumstances, you don't really get to learn about that.
2: Yeah. And I, I know that from my experience, you know, there are definitely people that, you know, sort of, quote unquote, don't know what to do with Sophie or, you know, they get really overwhelmed or intimidated by you know, the, the complexity of her syndrome and the challenges that she brings to bear and all of that kind of stuff. Those people don't matter. Mm -hmm. The people that matter are the people who see who she is aside from all of that. And they, they are willing to, to go toe to toe with all the difficult parts because they want to help her shine. And I am so, so lucky, you know, those, those people don't they, they aren't necessarily the people in your family. Mm-hmm. That is real.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I...
2: And they, you know, there are plenty of people. This is such a weird syndrome. Telling somebody that your kid can't participate in having a big piece of cake at a birthday party gets you funny looks, mm-hmm. you know, um, telling people, you know, there was a, a little boy who was friend front of our families and um, we were at a, a family, you know, family and friends gathering and One of the other kids was eating chips, and Sophie came over, again, opportunistic seeker person, Mm -hmm. and asked for a chip. And the kid didn't know and started to give it to her. And the other little boy comes over and goes, you can't give that to her. She's allergic to food. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) He's got her back. (laughs) Yeah. so funny because we had
2: to, of course, be like, well, she's not exactly allergic to food. Right, right. But that was a proper intervention. Yes. Um, And those advocates, teaching those little kids to advocate for their friend Mm -hmm. when they're so small. And, you know, helping them understand, you know, the reality. And that, that food is, you know, it's not. There's special food for everybody, and the fortunate situation for us right now is that you know there are so many allergies and challenges with you know um, different things that people are experiencing um, with their kids with um, exposure to different foods and dyes and all of these things that it's more acceptable now than mm-hmm. it was even ten years ago um, to be outspoken and say you know food as a reward is not a good idea and let's think of let's brainstorm some other solutions and let's think outside of the box here um because you're leaving kids out if you're doing that and um those are conversations that we're having all the time with all kinds of people and it's worth it it's worth it not just for my kid but for all the kids that um then get to have a reward and and get to participate and aren't left
1: out right I actually just recently interviewed a um, woman who runs a eating disorders clinic in Denver. And we were talking about something similar where it just when food gets tied to reward, just Mm -hmm. the the messages that that sends in general. And that's I mean, I understand that you're going through something much more, you know, this is a medical issue. But even just as a basic concept, what are we saying that so if you do something good, then you get this and what what's that teaching you? Right. And
2: we, we believe that very strongly. I mean, I don't know where I would be with that in the sense of, you know, if my child didn't have Carter willi syndrome, would I still believe that? I think I would. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's so much more so now, you know, it's, it's, an, un, it's an unhealthy relationship to have with food. Mm-hmm. And we need to realize that, you know, for Sophie and the thing that we really um, try to impress upon her is that we love food. And food is important, but it's about how it fuels our body. And it's about how our bodies use it to keep us energized and healthy. And, um, you know, we like things that taste good, but Sophie Sophie likes all kinds of food. And she she's great about, you know, she'll, she'll eat a big plate full of salad, where most kids who are 10 are like, um, that's green. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but she's, she's not afraid to do that. And so, you know, she'll go to a friend's birthday party, and they'll have pizza as the main entree. And so I'll say you know, okay, now Sophie can have one small piece of pizza and then she's going to bring her salad and she'll bring her own drink and she'll be set. and she's happy with that because she gets to participate but she also she has food that's good for her body and she is staying safe and healthy and those, you know, not everybody can even make those modifications. Some kids can't have cheese, some kids can't have grains, some kids, you know, and we tie food to celebration and we tie food to reward and, you know, we have to find ways to make it more about what food is, food is for instead of those things. And so, you know, we we struggle with that even still, but we, we do it because we're always trying to figure out how to make things work best for Sophie and our friends that have these other challenges too.
1: Yeah. What So what has been the things that have been the most helpful in people, friends, support people, that people have done to sort of circle around your family and, and support you? What has been you know, somebody's thinking, well, how could I better be there for my friend going through something like this?
2: Yeah. Um, well that first year, like I said, those people that came and visited me and helped me stay less isolated and helped me have a good laugh when I needed one and helped just look on my baby, no matter what those people were critical. I mean, that, I don't know if I would have gotten through that first year without them. I needed them, and they were so amazing, and I'm so appreciative. Um, further down the road, our community now, the, the biggest things that, I mean, one of my best friends runs a Girl Scout troop with me.
1: Mm. <laughs> You're a brave <laughs> because, woman.
2: <laughs> I, I, know, um, I, I wanted Sophie to be able to participate. I had participated when I was a kid, but I also knew that food is a huge part of mm. this thing this this girl scout experience and so I knew I needed to be able to control that and so I was like I need I need to be a leader and I was like all right friend let's go <laughs> and she was like all right I guess I'll do this and we've been doing it now this is at the end of our third year um her daughters are both involved in the troop as well and um we we don't have snacks at our meetings and we you know think about our kids we actually have other uh, at least one other child in our troop that has a, a food issue. So we think about our girls with the food issues and we always have that at the forefront of our brain. And, you know, we, we try, if we do food, we try to do very healthful food and we, you know, we, we always try to manage and our, even our service unit has been great about, there are lots of kids that have allergies and sensitivities and diets and all the stuff that, you know, they accommodate, they work really hard to make sure that that happens. And we're so thankful and grateful for that. But, that was something that, you know, was huge because that was something that I wanted. I wanted my daughter to experience, and I couldn't have done it without my friend. And so, and I still can't do it without my friend. Yeah. So um, it's it's really, it's, that's the kind of thing, just finding ways to, to collaborate and support. When we have a party, food stays in the kitchen. And when it's, when it's, we're not eating, we put it away. Mm-hmm. And people bring healthy choices. They say, "Hey, you know," or friends that have their own parties say, "Hey, this is the menu. What should we need to do anything for self Or you know, what what should you do? You want to bring something? Or you know, they they think about it. They mm-hmm. just have it on the forefront of their brain. And one friend, one time, we were going to her house, and she's like, "I'm cooking chicken in the crock pot. Is the smell going to bother Sophie?" That was unbelievable because I hadn't even thought about that. Mm-hmm. I was like, "I don't think so." you know, um, she was busy playing with her friends and she was okay. But it, that it just, that just really trying to take that moment and put themselves in her shoes mm-hmm. to say, what's going to be hard about this? Is there something that's going to be hard about this? How can I meet her needs better? And and then never being afraid to ask and say, you know, what can I do? How can I help? And then the other thing is just helping with You know, fundraising and supporting in that way is huge. And the last piece is one of the biggest challenges that we have as a family is that there are a lot of people who feel real comfortable taking care of my kid and that I feel comfortable Mm -hmm. taking care of my kid. So my husband and I don't have a lot of time right? (laughs) where it's just us. And that's really hard. It's really hard on us because... When you're married to somebody, you need to have some time with them. Um, and, you know, we, we get late night time, but by the end of the day, we're fried, you know, or we get a few hours, we can steal a few hours away and we go do that. But, you know, if there's any way to be able to support your friends and say, you know, hey, can we take, you know, your kid for a little while, you know, and, and what are the rules and do we need to have anything, you know, do, do we need to put this stuff away? Do we need to, to make sure there's how do we do this to make sure they're safe? Doing all of those things are huge support things to be able to do for families that are dealing with this Definitely. and really any any kind of
1: disability, truly and honestly. Yeah, just being okay. When, one of the things I've realized is that sometimes there's just a fear of saying the wrong thing or not getting it right or being expected to know everything about what somebody's going through. And I think that that's what people are just looking for is just oh, an awareness that you're going through something. And being okay to ask the question and say, I'm not sure about this. I don't know enough. Help me understand more.
2: Absolutely. And it, it really, for us, I'm, you know, I'm, now I will say this, and I, I say this because I think it's important. trader really is non-discriminatory. It happens to anyone, anywhere. It's a blip. It, it's just something that you know happens, and so it happens to great people, and it happens to not so good people too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like that's an important thing to say because not everybody reacts the same way. Okay. Um, some people get very angry and are, are just can't even handle it. And, and I mean there's definitely appropriate anger involved and it's certainly, you know, the unfairness of the situation, but like that become very, that become very spiteful. They, they're very spiteful against all the people who have healthy children. And they're very spiteful against all the people who um, are doing this thing or that thing that they don't agree with. And they, they're just, they're
1: fighting all mm-hmm. the time. They're
2: spending a lot of energy doing that. That happens for sure. Yeah. So there are going to be some people who are going to get really mad that you don't know all stuff. stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: I feel okay. like I need to say that. No, that's a because, fair warning
2: because, You know, you never know what you're going to expect, but I would say that by and large, most people are happy to answer questions, Mm -hmm. and I am definitely always one of those people, and if there's ever a doubt and you don't know and you want to learn more about anything, you know, find other people who are dealing with it find a way like we're having in here in Chicago and Deerfield, Illinois, which is a north suburb. We're having a um, fundraising walk in June, June 16th. And um, I encourage people go to the walk, Mm -hmm. you know, go meet other families, talk to the other parents. If you're afraid to ask the person that you know and love, you know, go find the other people who are experiencing it and ask them the questions. If you feel like you can't Burden your person with those questions you know um, we had an experience where my husband's parents are wonderful amazing supportive people and there's but it's, what's fascinating and interesting is that they're a doctor and a nutritionist and there are lots of questions that they had that we couldn't even answer mm-hmm. so we took them to a conference where they could talk to physicians who were doing research and they could get their questions answered and they could talk to other grandparents and they could talk to people about what do you do? How do you deal with this? What, you know, because there were definitely things that we didn't know and we, or that we just, you know, we couldn't even express and they had this experience and they learned so much by having experiences from other people and that helped them be more supportive to us. And I think that those are the kinds of things that people can really do, even in a case where maybe the person is overwhelmed
1: and they can't even answer questions anymore. That makes sense. I love that. One of the questions I have um, just to kind of, well, first I wanted to know, is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you were hoping you'd be able to share?
2: Oh, my goodness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Too many things?
2: Honestly, I don't know, but I feel like we covered a lot.
1: <laughs> we did cover a lot, and thats I very much appreciate your openness because I think that's the, I mean, that's sort of what helps other people. Get a better understanding, not just of this circumstance, but just of people in general, just to help you understand things that are outside of you. Um, Right. Well, and May is part of Really Awareness Month. So that
2: was one of the things that was so, again, serendipitous, Mm -hmm. exciting. When I got in touch with you was just that, you know, talking with you and being able to say, you know, this is my experience during Awareness Month. Was it it's just seemed like the right thing to do and, and being open and sharing this experience with other people um, really it it only helps it only helps other people and you know it helps my kid from the perspective of I, I'm very I'm even very open like on Facebook with my friends and educating people and people I meet in the world you know and um, and a part of that is my social work background and, and understanding that people often are coming at things from a place of not knowing. Mm-hmm. And, and how, can, how can I help them better understand so that they can support my kid appropriately? But also, you know, if people don't know, then they're not motivated. And there are a ton of people who said, you know, you really changed my mind when you told all the stories about how Sophie was left out at birthday celebrations in school. You changed my mind on how to deal with that. And now I send a trinket instead.
0: Mm.
2: And that's a little thing, but it's huge all the kids who maybe couldn't have, you know, the, the food celebration and now get the same thing as everybody else in their class.
1: Right. I love that. Or maybe the parents who didn't feel comfortable, you know, saying no in front of other people, you know, some, like you said, you're very, it sounds like you're strong and you are going to do what you need to do regardless of other people's perceptions, but not everybody necessarily (laughs) has that. That's fairly accurate. Skill set. (laughs) Um, What about resources? Are there any special websites or Facebook groups or things that you would point people to to check out if, if you need more information? Definitely. Um,
2: and as I mentioned, there's Predator uh, Willie USA is one resource, and they do all kinds of, they do, again, they do some funding for um, research. They also provide um, educational support and services. They provide crisis intervention services. Um, they have folks on staff that can help with, um, you know, medical information and things of that nature, which is really great. And then there's the Foundation for Predator Willie Research, which really, for me, has been a lifeline because they, they're focus is on research and learning more about all of the many questions that we have about this syndrome and they are really pushing for treatment and cure and you know curing a genetic disorder is not going to be easy Um, but there are some early indications that some of this might be possible and there are definitely indications that there is treatment for some of these pieces of the syndrome that will make life-changing opportunities for my child and i am very invested in that not everybody's invested in that i am very invested in that um and they have lots of great
0: information both of those groups have
2: lots of great information about what it is what it does they have opportunities to get involved um ways to support people and those things make a big difference and then on facebook i mean there are a million groups, um, but getting connected with those two major sources and then, um, finding people who are like-minded, you know, that have it similar, not everybody does things the way that we do things. Not everybody does things the way that this person over here does things. And we all feel like, I think every single one of us who is a parent of a child with Proud really syndrome feels like they're falling short because we can't fix our kids. Mm-hmm. And we all feel like we're not doing enough. We are not exercising our kids enough. We're not feeding them perfectly correctly. We're not um, giving them all the medications that they need. We're not traveling to New York to be involved in this study. Or we can't get... There's another physician. There's a physician in Florida at the University of Florida in Gainesville named Dr. Jennifer Miller. And she is amazing. Um, And we saw her when we did that oxytocin clinical trial that really changed my daughter's experience of her disorder for just one week and it was back it was almost exactly three years ago that she participated it was a very exciting time for us and we are still very hopeful that oxytocin or carbutocin something that is similar to that which they're still deeply in research with um will change sophie's experience of her world um and not everybody can get to that doctor we haven't been back to her you know it's you always feel like you're missing something but finding again, just finding those people who are like-minded that are dealing with the same things as you. I, I go to a, a retreat every year, every other year to be just with moms who have kids with Prader willi syndrome. And I talk with them mm-hmm. and I hang out with them and we share experiences and we share tricks and tips and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it's so unbelievably empowering to me to have that experience of being surrounded by other people who get it. Yes. Because even if you know somebody and you're supporting them, until you're in this spot, this exact spot, you, it's understanding truly what that's like is really hard. And being with those, it's like being with my family, my people. These are my people, you yes. know? Um, so finding any kind of connection. And certainly for us, the minute that we met other Sophie and saw that, you know, what our kid could be, and then met other people, and then met other people, and then started going out and meeting other people. And, she, you know, not everybody's going to end up being like a Sophie. Not everybody's going to end up being like some of the other kids that have heart syndrome. Some are going to be over here on the spectrum, and some are going to be over here on the spectrum. You know, some of these kids, you know, took Sophie until she was two and a half to walk. Some kids still, they never are able to walk. You know, some kids have such other complex medical issues not even because of carter willi because they have other syndromes, like I mentioned earlier. Those things can kind of go together. Um, you know, you, you don't always get to the one hundred percent end game of where you, you know, you hope you'll get. And I, am not there with Sophie. You know, I, I, I want so much more for her. Mm-hmm. But you know what? She's happy, and relatively speaking, she's healthy. And she loves her life, and she loves her people. And that's, I mean, that's, you know, you always say you want a healthy and happy baby. I got one half of that. Yes. <laughs> and, and it makes you really reevaluate that thought because maybe your kid's not going to be healthy. And maybe, you know, that's not going to happen for you. But it doesn't mean it's not worth it. It doesn't mean that every little minute is not worth it.
1: I love that. Well, you sound like an awesome mom. i Thank it, you. really though. I mean, it's, it sounds like, uh, you put everything into your family life.
2: I, I do. And, and I, I, I love my family and I love my kid and I love my husband. And, you know, I, I always say too, and I, this, this is really important to say, I, you know, I mentioned that we don't get a lot of time just off me and my husband, but I couldn't do this without him. I, I always think about, you know, trying to think of a, you know, a partner that could help me. And like I said, he had that, that experience of being a patient and I had that experience of being an advocate and the two together. It's just, you know, I'm so grateful for that support because I, I couldn't do it by myself for sure.
1: One, it's funny, because one of the things that I usually ask as a last question is, and maybe your answer is different, but it seems like maybe you already answered it is um, about self care for yourself. And what do you do for yourself to make sure, you know, we talk about the family brain and the family system, but you know, Mm -hmm. you can only be strong if you take care of yourself. And um, I don't know if your retreat is your answer, but uh, is that part of what you do for yourself? Or what do you do to make sure you're, you're taking care of you as well?
2: That is definitely part of it, for sure. Um, finding time to be with other people who understand what I'm going through. And, and, I mean, the online community is fantastic. And I have tons of friends that I have made over the years that have kids with Prepper Willie Syndrome who I can turn to when things get hard. We have a thing on Fridays called, um, oh, what's it called? Uh, Small Victories Friday and, and, and in one of our groups. And... It's because it's not going to make a big difference to other people if we say, hey, we made it through spring break and we didn't want to jump off a diving board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those guys get it. And right. so we share the littlest of victories and the biggest of victories every week. And we read about what the other kids are doing and we share. And it's, it's wonderful. That is huge. Um, I would also say that I still I struggle I struggle for sure with self-care. I struggle with finding the balance. I struggle with um, dealing with my own frustrations when things are really hard. One of the other things that's really difficult, I get so frustrated at, you know, it's a very difficult journey emotionally to be the parent of a child with special needs, but then you add the expense on And I mentioned Mm -hmm. the $800 21 day supply of
1: medication, you know, adding insult to injury.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, you should be able to just take care of your kid and focus on taking care of your kid and not worry about going bankrupt. And watching how we struggled in the beginning and still continue to struggle at times with accessing things that we need for basic care for our kid and watching, you know, we're very fortunate. We have resources. My husband has a great job, and we're we're doing awesome, especially con- compared to where we were before but you know families who don't have those resources um moms who are doing this by themselves um you know people who in illinois unless you are below a very low income bracket services are not available medical um support is not available and watching that struggle is is unbelievable and so I get really I'm I'm an empathetic person you know and so I get really frustrated with you know why aren't we taking care better care of people and why aren't we taking better care of these children and and not just my kid and not just these kids but all kids you know
0: and so that's that's you know, I get sort of in that existential crisis and get really upset and frustrated. And, you know, I have to take a step back and like be
2: like, OK, calm it down, you know, do what you can do. I'm, I'm very politically active. You know, I try to make sure my voice is heard and, and I try to teach my kid that that's important. Um, and fortunately, I have a group of friends that rally around me in that way, too, and um, but I mean, I think it, it is. It's always a struggle, and it's always a balance. And I need to do more and be better. But um, certainly, I'm I'm going to keep working at it because it is. It's critical. Like if you don't, if you don't fill your own cup, mm-hmm. you don't have anything left to give. Right. And one again, I sort of alluded to this earlier. One of the things with Sophie that I'm so lucky about is that she is she is a great lover. Like she just loves life and she mm-hmm. loves people and she she comes and she wants to snuggle me and she wants to be close to me. And that really fills me up. That really, that, those moments of being, you know, being able to give her that, that's something that really comforts her also fills me up. And that's, that's really important to me too. And I'm, I know that that's not everybody, but that's, that's something that thank goodness for that. Cause I don't, I don't know how I'd be if I didn't have that with her.
1: I love that. I love a good snuggler. I love I, it. I hope we don't have yeah. like that. we're my ten-year-old, not so much these days, but yeah. yeah see, but they're I mean, all different. They're like, this is my line in the sand. Right, and but they're all different. It. I mean, I know that there's. I have other kids that I can kind of picture hanging on to snuggling for longer. So just depends mm-hmm. on the kid. But well, thank you so much for sharing your story and your life with me and all the people listening. Absolutely. Thank
2: you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really, really
1: appreciate
0: that. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.